Hello and welcome to 20 Tim Minutes, a podcast that focuses on mental health in a serious but yet humorous way. Listen as I interview a wide variety of guests where we show our support as well as sharing our own personal struggles and stories with mental health. I am your host, Tim McCarthy, and now it's time to talk about it. Hey, what's going on, everybody? You're tuning into another episode of 2010 Minutes. Today, we have on motivational speaker and the tattooed life coach, Rob Eastman. How are you, my friend? I'm good. I'm good. I appreciate you having me on, and I'm looking forward to the chat. Fantastic. I feel like it's missing out that no one calls you Rob Beastman. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I think I think uh, in my former life they probably called me worse things, and now maybe they uh, <laughs> just look in fear and don't dare say much due to the to the beast mode yeah, that right. I uh, present. Um, I start this off with all my guests. What does mental health mean to you, my friend? Man, asked me twenty years ago, and I wouldn't even know what that meant. And today, for me, that is my first step my first goal my what i look to first thing in the morning it's everything you know without your mental health you literally have nothing so it's a it's it's what i live and die for and uh it's my passion so love it you wear many hats as a former addict you have transcended into a recovery coach can you tell us about the history of, of addiction was like for yourself yeah it uh man it started at a very young age as far as my mental health right out the womb, ADHD, getting bullied day one by teachers because I couldn't sit still in class, which transitioned onto the playground because if it was okay for the teachers to do it, the kids felt comfortable doing it. And at a certain point, you get to a place of that emotional pain that all you want to do as a kid is fit in. And no matter what you do, you can't find that peace. Then I don't care who and what you are that thought of, well, I'd be better off not here. The world would be better off without me. And my family has a very long line of suicides. And uh, that's where it kind of started for me was, was finding ways to, to alleviate the pain. And me and my father, we can probably get into that later, but had a very stern talk where he shared about his parents and his grandparents who had taken their lives. And that, that if I were to do that, he doesn't know what he would do and he might end his life. And for a kid, you know, I, I love my dad. I wanted to make my dad proud. I didn't want to hurt him. So that left me now the eliminating the opportunity to take my own life. What's left? The pain, I can't barely, you know, I'm, I'm just simply treading water, trying to keep my head above, which leads to failing classes, fighting with people, not getting along at home or in school. So I was introduced to, to drugs. And, and for that first few times, it took the pain away. And it made a lot of sense until you you know anybody that's ever drank for a long period of time or done drugs for a long period of time what took the pain away ultimately becomes the pain and no matter what you do there's the pain so that's a kind of you know just untreated mental health you know back in the 80s and early 90s nobody was talking about it no. we didn't have the the data we didn't have the resources so i'm in and out of doctors offices all the time coming back to school my friends are asking me what i did you know, I'm at the doctors and I'm like, why are you at the doctors? And then that just gave them another reason to make me feel isolated and different and weird. So you just, you know, I learned to wear masks and kind of put on that fake smile and become whatever you needed me to be to fit in, which you get home and then you're left empty because you know, you're a fraud, you know? So it just, 
you know, kids don't have the tools. Most parents even now don't have the tools and they try and play the therapist. They try and play the coach. And then it, they always wait till it's a crisis. And, and by that time it's years of trauma therapy to get out of it. And, uh, it takes a lot of willingness to get through that. So man, don't get me started on all this. <laughs> <laughs> That's why you're here, my friend. That's why you're here. How oh, old were you shit. when you first started using or abusing? I should say. Well, I first started thinking about end of my life at nine years old. And so I was sitting there watching a football. So right after they got me on Ritalin, right? The the school said, if you don't get him medicated, then we're going to have to hold him back or he's not, he's going to have to go somewhere else. So I went to the doctor before Ritalin was even a thing. It was a test drug. They put me on it. And the very next year, my teacher gets mad at me. Robbie, why can't you sit still? Come up and take your pill and, and sit down and the whole class laughed at me so i'm like if these dudes are, and ladies are laughing at me they must not have to take pills i'm not going to take pills right so from then i just started uh you know faking like i would take it and hiding it or whatever and i was sitting there watching a denver broncos game and i was like maybe 12 or something and a news thing came on and it talked about one of the linemen abusing Ritalin. And I was like, hmm. And he was telling his story of how it made him feel and all this stuff. So that night, I went back into the bottle and uh, I took like 12 of them and had my first hallucinations and all these different things. And and that really scared me and kind of pushed me away from thinking about drugs and even deeper into suicide. And then, like we talked about earlier, is once I got to about ninth grade, um, I was introduced to weed because I come from, I don't know if you know what the Mormons, LDS yep. religion. So we don't drink, you don't smoke, you don't have sex before you're married, you know, all these things. And the only thing that I had promised my mother is that I wouldn't drink or, or do drugs and have sex before I was married. So I was fighting all these moral and spiritual battles and, you know, feeling so empty anyways that once I hit that, hit the pipe, it was just like for that two hours, one hour, I, I didn't give a shit. I didn't yeah. think about anxiety. I didn't think about depression. And then when it wore off, you know, the, all the pain comes back. So you want to find that next bowl and, you know, you can play that tape through for 10 to 20 years. Right. So that's, you know, and, and then on top of that, where you're just managing your mental health as a kid, not, you know, not even managing, but surviving your mental health. You don't, you don't develop the emotional skills necessary. So I didn't mature. At 15, I was really probably maybe eight, nine, because I had a bad temper. When people, because of being bullied, you said something, you called me, you know, I had big ears to the point, and people were making fun of me so bad that my parents got me surgery before I went to junior high to, to make it so that I'd fit in a little bit more. And so here I am like surgically altering how I look and how I feel and just rotting inside. It just, man, it was just brutal. Yeah. That's very heartbreaking. And so starting that at nine years old, thinking about suicide, that is a, that is something else, man. I do. That's, I can't even imagine that. Yeah. It's a, not, not a fun thing because you don't, you're constantly questioning those people that do treat you good or that do, that are around or that are your friends constantly questioning, like, is this real? Right. So you can't even enjoy the time you do have. You're just waiting for the ax to drop for them to, you know, set you up and make funny in front of you, of, you know, set up a situation where it just 
belittles the hell out of you. Yeah. So it was even uncomfortable when it was comfortable. So you're a life coach now. So do you remember the exact moment or thought you were like, yep, it's time for me to get my life back? And then who else was your biggest inspiration with that? Yeah, so um, from day one, probably 15, 16 years old, the second I tasted drugs, I was hooked. So we started drinking in high school, taking pills in high school. Right after high school, added Oxycontin, meth, Coke, crack. Like, And I just added two because these stopped working, but I didn't see that. So I added these and multiple suicide attempts and fast forward um i had two friends die the night of my second friend's funeral i overdosed died flatlined four times coma for 10 days went to rehab got clean and ended up getting married in the temple having a beautiful wife got my concrete company up and running beautiful everything's going great I had changed all my relationships and had repaired them. But the one relationship I didn't work on was my relationship with pain. And I had been coasting, riding that pink cloud, and everything was going well in my world. But then I blew my ACL playing soccer and uh, went to surgery, came out, did okay for a day. My wife went back to work. And then the next day, the nerve block wore off. And I'd been sober for almost two years. Mm. And, uh, when I felt that pain, it was like I hadn't been sober for a day. I had a needle in my arm within an hour and uh, now let God down, lie into my wife, let everybody down, you know, all that shame and everything piled on. And so I fell back off and uh, just lied for a while, ended up having a daughter. And at that point, I couldn't even barely maintain myself. And my wife picked up and left me. And I ended up above. I live in Bountiful, Utah. There's a Mormon temple up there, and I ended up in the mountains with a gun in my mouth. And uh, I said a prayer, man. I was up there just contemplating, like, if there's a God, he's never answered a prayer. You know, I'm going to say one more and uh, and see, because my mom's real, real religious, and I wanted almost in a spiteful way, like, you know what? Your God failed you. He failed me. So I'm going to say this prayer, and if I don't get an answer, then when you die, you can go and and look him in his face and say, you failed me. So I knelt down and I said a prayer. I said, I don't know anything about a still small voice. I'm going to need something a little bit louder than that. And if I don't get it, by the time I open my eyes, I'm pulling this trigger. And I remember starting to pull the trigger, opening my eyes. And it was August 31st, 2009. A firework display went off above this temple. And I was like, is that the sign? And all of a sudden I heard a voice and it said, is that loud enough? And I was paralyzed. I didn't believe, I didn't know if I believed in God. I didn't know if I believed in really anything at this point. I'd been 20 years of just destroying my life and those around me. And uh, I just laid there bawling in the, in the dirt and, and finally got myself up and went down and gave my dad the gun and drove myself to the hospital. And the following day is my sobriety birthday of September 1st, 2009. Awesome, man. So that was the, that was the time that I knew that I needed more. My daughter might want to know her dad one day. She was seven months old at the time. And uh, it just kind of transitioned to where my story is a little unique in the sense that my dad was a state senator. He was a car dealer. He's the school board president. Like he had, all, he, no matter what he touched, he turned to gold. And I'm over here just blowing everything up. He, he sets the law and I break it the same day. And uh, 
it was just, I just couldn't, I couldn't do it. And I just, I finally had to give in and, and I had some really wild experiences the first nine months of sobriety that really solidified leaving literally no option for me was I got out of rehab. The day I got out, my wife picked me up and drove me home and let me know that we were divorced. A few days after that, the bank came in and took everything I owned. And uh, at nine months sober, my dad passed away. And so I'm sitting there like, what the fuck? I'm doing everything that everybody's telling me to do. And now if there is a God, I, I want to go there. I want to punch him right in his fucking mouth. And uh, so I was like, you know what? If there's a heaven, my dad's probably there. And if my dad's there, he's definitely running the show. So I quit praying to God and I started praying to my dad. And that gave me a connection that I could believe in. It gave me an opportunity to kind of have those conversations when nobody else is around and feel comfortable doing that. And once I came out as an addict in public eye, because if I get a DUI, I made the news because of who my dad was. Right. I made the newspapers. I made the, the chatter. Everybody wanted to talk about the family. So when I came out as a recovering addict, it also sprung a leak of people like being like, Hey, you know, I'm an addict too. Can you help me? So I didn't ask to be a life coach. It kind of found me. And so when my dad passed, he was kind of my enabler and he's the one that would fix things. If they were broken, would pay bills if I couldn't. And so I couldn't afford a therapist. So I went back and got a Pell grant from the, from the government and went to school. And I only studied psychology, not to learn the skill, but to learn why I was so messed up. And so as I was doing it, I found this deep love and I could attach almost every page, every word in that to my life experience, whether it be me, my niece, my nephew, my past relationship. Like I went from being like a 1.3 student to retaining like almost a hundred percent of what I read and getting an A in college. So then it just went on to me just falling in love with psychology. I bought every book up to abnormal psychology and studied my own story. And then as I worked with people, if I hadn't experienced it, I studied their story. So fast forward 13 years, I've been self-study psychology, probably close to a doctorate level in, in self-study. And use the only other thing I was good at was athletics. So I combined fitness and psychology together. And have been using that to teach people how to do hard things in a safe environment for the last 13 years. It's only been about 20 minutes in our conversation, and I've been on a roller coaster of your life. That is incredible. <laughs> um, I was, dude, I've been like hooked. Your your story is a movie. Who was your biggest inspiration with all this? Man, I think my dad. I have some pretty amazing people around me, but to give you a little background on my dad. He was an only child. His mother told him that his father was an idiot and did not like him and all of these things. And that's why they were here. And he was adopted by a man named Robert Eastman. And uh, he came and his mother was like, all I remember of her is a shadow with smoke, right? She didn't like kids. She didn't like my mom. She didn't like that. Like, she was just a dark, dark soul. And my dad came up, he was the youngest, he was like 20 years old, and he was the youngest bank manager in Nevada. He just had the skill to bring people together. He didn't even need to know the business because he was a people person. 
And so he takes this this failing bank and builds it up and then moves on in a in a company from Salt Lake, a big Toyota dealer, brought him up to because they were failing, brought him up and he rebuilds that. And then he wanted to start his own business. So he was gonna bring his his dad in, his adopted father, and they were gonna do this car business together. And the day they were gonna open, his dad drove a truck for Chevron and he ended up getting in a terrible accident and dying. And uh, that was a big loss for him. And then almost a year to the day later, his mother committed suicide. Jeez. So here's this man that goes and he's helping and he's of service and he's doing so much in the community. He's getting guys out of jail, giving them laptops and sending them to college and giving them jobs at the dealership and it, zero limelight. He doesn't want anybody to know what he's doing. And uh, so looking at just the things I've experienced to imagine the amount of pain he must have been in and was being of service to others to step outside of that pain. It's just like, how did he do that? Yeah. You know, he didn't have the resources. He didn't have any guidance. You know, he had some good mentors around him, but to see and to see that he never gave up on me and how much like I was a prick, man, I was a, I was an asshole he never put a hand on me. If if I if I had a kid like me, I would I would be for sure catch a domestic violence. I would knock the shit out of me. And he just loved me through it. You know, he started I'll give you a, a funny little couple two stories of his personality. So I was had chewing tobacco, and he hated that. But rather than chewing my ass about it, he found it in my car, and he went back and he got one of my pieces of dog shit. He put it in the can shook it up and put it right back where it was. He's like, okay, if you're going to chew, you're going to chew something else, you know? And he, another time he found a bag of beer and he poked all holes in all the beer and left it in the bag. And he put dog shit in that. So when I reach in to get a beer, it was just nasty. So he found a way to, to make it a little easier on his soul, but you know, he just never gave up on me. And we had a rocky relationship just because I was so abrasive, but to know that he loved me, until the day he passed was just you know you don't know what you know until until it's gone and, and uh every i don't think i applied much that he taught me while he was here but he is 100 percent the inspiration and and uh my guide of just what it means to be a man not being perfect but being honest and, and helping others and and knowing it's not all about you but that our fails are what propel us and, and maybe the key to somebody else's success. So putting that fake smile on and hoping nobody finds out that's the sickness, you know? And it, it came down to, I wanted friends my entire life. I wanted real people around me my entire life. And I tried so hard to get that come to find out the more I am real. And the more I tell people all the shit I didn't want them to know, the more I have real people around me. I'm like, damn, I could have saved myself two decades of serious pain if I just would have been real. Right. It's like, shit. So my push really is if men's health, youth, mental health, that like your, your fail is exactly what somebody on your block needs. And if you die with that, that's the sin. That's the regret. Right. Like we need it. I don't care how great things are. I want to hear how awful things are and how the hell you got out of that. Right. Like that's the important key to success for me. Everyone loves a comeback story. Yeah. So he was, he was the ultimate, you know, at his funeral, it was packed. 
the police shut down the roads and we had three guys come up after and said, you don't know me, but your father put me through college. And we're just like, what? You know, just to see all of these things he did in silence, not for any, any recognition or anything, just because he knew that these guys had something to give. And, uh, that really, that really touched my heart. And I never thought I'd be of service. I'd sure shit. If you heard my name, you would not think I'd be working with kids. I'm a head coach in the high school and junior high for wrestling. And I mentor youth and it's just my life. When I, when I got out of my own way and quit driving the bus and let somebody else guide it, you know, things started working out for me. Props to your dad raising a great guy. Yeah. Yeah. He's a, that and then my daughter is she's uh she's definitely the the go-to right now awesome if you're she's a parent awesome. out, if you're a parent out there and you have a shitty kid the secret ingredient is dog shit okay <laughs> learn that from mr eastman <laughs> specifically husky yeah exactly <laughs> that's so funny i love that story um did you hit any snags or bumps in the road in your recovery um not Man, that's a tough one because I didn't know. I tried to quit 10,000 times. Easy. You know, I was sick on Sunday. I'm right it off until I felt good on Thursday and I was in the club Thursday night. But once I understood the psychology, understood, you know, having mentors and, and being honest and all of those things, um, that first time through rehab, I did have the relapse that lasted about six months. And it's all about that emotional pain. It's all about the shame or putting your worth in other people. And that's where I just highly suggest that everybody's recovery is their own. And you need to set goals and standards in which that you can live in. And being afraid to tell my wife, feeling like I let people down and all this crap just put me deeper in the hole, which is letting people down. Right. If you have a screw up, if you slip and you tell people, they might be upset or what, because they love you. And that's it. Like have a bad day and move along. Not don't turn it into a bad decade. So the second time around, I went back just totally humble, broken and, and willing to, I needed to get out of my own way. You know, it just came down to the point where I'm a really good co-pilot, but if I'm driving the bus, we're pretty sure going to wreck. So I don't need to reinvent the wheel anymore. I'm a grinder, man. I'm a, I'm a street soldier and I will go out and I will do whatever you tell me to do. And I own multiple businesses, but I have somebody who I run everything by and I let them poke holes in it because I'm emotionally attached to what I want to do. These guys are not. So they make it much a way better chance of success by showing me what I'm not seeing, saving me money, saving me time making sure I don't make the wrong relationships. It's like to be the guy like, yeah, I did this. Like, no, there's not a self-made man on the planet. Everybody has had its help at some point. So I just figure I'm like, if it fails, I have somebody to blame, <laughs> you <Yeah>. know, <laughs> but it, it's been amazing. You know, I went from making, when I first got out of rehab, I was like, if I could just make 40 grand a year, I'm good. Like I will be fine. And I went and talked to the mentor and I was making 80 grand by like eight weeks later. And I was like, well, shit, if I could just make, if I could just make like, it's just false summits all the time because you're leveling up, which means either money goes up or your understanding of yourself goes up. 
And if you're a destination guy, you're going to be constantly left empty because when you get there, it's not as cool as you thought it would be. Right. Or you get there and you find out that it's a false summit. So now I'm a journey guy. I enjoy every day. I appreciate who and what comes into my life for a time because everything is borrowed. And I know that if I get to a place where I'm feeling really good, it's God's way or the creator or whoever you want to believe in. It's their way of saying, hey, take your shoes off, catch your breath, get a snack because you got an even bigger hill to hit next. I'm never, I will never arrive and I will never have the mindset that I have. You deal with a lot of bullying as well. You were bullied during your life, like you said. What's the best way for kids and even adults to combat bullying? You know, to be honest, it's uh, this anti-bullying stuff is probably causing more harm than help. That's what I was saying. Elaborate. It's, yeah, so kids, there's going to be bullies no matter what. There's bullies at work and as adults, as kids. Kids are mean. They say what they, they, say that what they see. Their filters are not developed yet. Confident kids don't get bullied. So the best thing you can do is put your kids in tough situations where they can learn real confidence, not you telling them how great they are and they've never done anything to be great. So with my daughter, I wanted her to have a, a different experience. And I was like, what could I possibly do? It's like when she's dating and she comes home crying because a guy touched her boobs or whatever it is or mistreated her, or called her a name. I can be tough and I can go over there and I can beat his dad up or I can prepare my daughter and be honest with her about what's really coming down the pipeline, what body language to look for, how to be strong physically, emotionally, and mentally, how to define her own worth so that no man or woman will ever come into her life and tell her her worth. So we started jujitsu. We started boxing. We ride dirt bikes. We rock climb. All things with major fails attached to them. Do I swoop in and save her? No, I swoop in and laugh and give her a hug and be like, how did that feel? What did you learn? Right. And if you do that at a young age where it's not an epic fail, like a drug overdose or a DUI, or they kill somebody because they drank for the first time and they didn't feel safe telling you about that they're thinking about drinking. It's like, if your kid's quirky, take them, teach them how to fight. Teach them. I don't, I don't condone violence, but if somebody is being pushy or crossing boundaries with my daughter, she's going to choke the shit out of them. Yep. End of story. And I will go and sit with the principal or the parent or whoever it is and be more than happy to have that conversation. But sometimes the bully has to be bullied. And I, and again, I do not condone violence, but if I would have had the least bit of self-confidence, it wouldn't have affected me the way it did. My self-confidence went way up when I started jujitsu at the age of like 31. And uh, like I was yeah. bullied as a younger kid. I know that the confidence thing is, is such like an um, underrated way of looking at it because that is true. When you come in with confidence, you're like, hey, this guy's not bothering me. Like bullies yeah. get bullied. I'm about that. I'm with you. Yeah. Yeah. And it's like the bullies, they're not going to go find the tough kid. They find the weakest link in the room. Yep. So make damn sure it's not your kid. Where do, you know, why, why do you think people are bullies? What does that stem from, you think? I think it's from definitely some discomfort in themselves, and they probably get bullied at home. You know, that's the thing. Until, the, until you break the chain of your family's nonsense and the shit that's been passed down from generation to generation, the false beliefs, the you need to work nine to five for the rest of your life, and you need to step in line, and you need to, and you have these hopes and dreams over here, it's, it's never going away. And now, we're introducing all of the pronouns and cats and dogs and all this stuff. Like, what do you think is going to happen to your kid when they walk into a school dressed like a cat and all they do is meow? 
what do you think is going to happen? Like that is not normal. That's mental health issues and those need to be dealt with. But it's like, you, we've got to start being real. You literally, even if you're religious, your political views, whatever, there's right and there's wrong. And there's the basic life skills understanding that needs to be taught and needs to be taught well, that if you don't do ABC, then these things are going to happen. If you do this, this is what's going to happen. And be real with them. Because you can tell them they're cute. They're, you're good just the way you are. And the kid's 60 pounds overweight. You're telling them something and it's not matching what they're feeling. That's confusing. So, and that's just my piece. But, like, you just got to get real. And share your failed parents. Like, I don't want to tell them that I drank because that'll give them the right to drink. It's like, no, it won't. Share your experience. If it sucked, tell them. Like, just developmentally alone. Like if you feel like crap and you drink, guess what? You're really going to feel like crap. Yep. It's a tough you world know? out there. You got to teach them. Yeah. And it's, you know, I'm, I'm all about, you know, being yourself and whatever you feel, but there's a definitely a fine line between mental issues and, and who you are inside. Right. So, Do you think the main cause of suicide with kids is stem from bullying? Yeah. That and shame and uh, not knowing your place. You know, you see things at home, mom and dad are fighting all the time. You feel it's your fault, you know, or you're being bullied and you don't want to be a burden. So you don't tell anybody or these unrealistic expectations. Most of them are due to grades and religious beliefs or, and if you're gay or straight, it's like if you're gay for me, and you get to heaven, and God's like, you know what? You were such a good person, but you're gay, so you can't come in. Why would you want to be with that dude anyways? It's like, be the best version of who you are, whoever you are. Do that to the best of your ability, and let the cards fall where they fall. But don't sit and worry about what all these other people are going to do or say. Like, it's hard. Life is hard enough, and you'll never be the best copycat. You're a great motivational speaker. You got me going over here. I got goosebumps over here. Um, I always wondered this with somebody that is a uh, motivational speaker. Is it tough when you deal with somebody that pushes back on finding the motivation that you're trying to give? Um, It used to be. It used to really bother me. But it comes down to there's some people that have an excuse for every solution. And those people you just... You just don't give the attention to anymore. Like they're going to have to learn the hard way. Some of us just have to learn the hard way. You put, they put so much energy in to debunking the solution. If they would put that same energy into just taking it, they'd be happy. So I heard this guy say, I thought I could really help everyone, but I found out I can't turn losers into winners. I just help winners win more. Yeah. So unfortunately there are those that are, either so egotistical or narcissistic and that goes both men and women that are so hurt that it's going to take something epic for them to just get smashed by life in order to be like, holy shit, everything I've been doing was a waste of time. I was my biggest problem. So I don't, I don't convince anybody of anything. You take it or leave it. I don't got time for that shit. And so that as a coach, we have an initial consult. And that's for me to see if I want to work with you. Yeah. I don't give a shit about your money. Cause if you're a pain in my ass, 10 grand, hundred grand, 
doesn't matter. It's a waste of my time. It's too much because now I'm having to refill my emotional bank because of your ass. And I'm not doing that. Why do you think people are so reluctant, reluctant to get help? Oh man, it's, it's that mental health thing that we think we're right. Mm -hmm. You know, pills won't work. Therapy doesn't work. Therapy. It's like, you're not working any of them. You're looking for that quick fix or the go get your brain shocked and you're good. It's like energy healers, fitness, nutrition, rehab, whatever. They're all tools and you need all of them. There's not one that's going to fix it all. You have to you prayer, scripture, whatever it is. You can read all you want. You can pray all you want, but you got to be open to the prompting. And then guess what? You got to take action. So people don't like that part. Right. Like, what do you mean? I got to do what? Like, nah, I'm good. I'm going to be depressed for another decade. Right. Maybe then, you know, it's, and, and they're too prideful to ask for help or it's like ego goes either way. I'm better than, or I'm worse than, and people don't understand that. So they're like super low, like Eeyore, like, Oh, I don't know. Or no, I got it figured out. I'm good. No, nope, I'll, I'll figure it out. And it's like 10 DUIs later, like, are you going to figure it out yet? Are you, got, you, got, you got this one figured out? It's like, so that's where you just got to wave the white flag. And it's usually about a 24 hour period of when you're like, okay, I'm really fucked and I'm willing to get help. And then if you go to sleep on that without signing up or getting the help, the adversary is going to hop in and be like, nah, you're good. It was just a bad day. It's like, you've had a bad day since 2017. Yeah. <laughs> it's now five years later. So it's, that's the tricky part is it, it convinces us that we're actually right. And that everybody else is stupid. Right. What is, um, the realest and hardest step for somebody in recovery that you would tell them like, Hey, this is what it's really like. Like, what are you telling them straight up? That you don't know shit and that you need to listen to all these people around you who've been through exactly what you're going through. Yep. Like they have a, a, a saying, it's like, yeah, you're unique just like everybody else. Like we, we have a say it's terminally unique. Like you're no different. You're not the situation, the people, the players might, their faces are different, but we all feel deeply. We all made mistakes. We all do things to excess. We're fucking our life up. We're burning it down. These steps when applied can help. Yep. So I quit. If, if you were so smart, you wouldn't be sitting here. Like, I mean, really? Yeah. <laughs> you know, if we had it figured out, I still don't. The more I know, I love like going to AA and you get the one year guy. Their speeches are always epic. If you do, and they just have it all figured out, then you get the guy that has 25 years stands up. He's like, I still don't know shit. Thank you. I'm going to take another 24. <laughs> and it's like, okay, there it is. Yeah. Like the more, I, the more clean time I get, the less I know. The more humble I stay, the more I'm open to suggestion, the more of a student I become. It's like you were such a slave for so long, you want to be in control. And if you let that control take you to a place of superiority, the adversaries win in both ways. You're like, okay, I'm going to put you up here for even a bigger downfall. Right. So you just stay humble and you have to change your inner circle of quality of people as you grow. That doesn't mean that you're better. That just means that you're outworking some of the people you were around. And be willing to be the weakest link in the room at all times. That's where growth happens. 
as a motivational speaker, the tattooed life coach, do you ever get misconceptions from people that look at you and you're like, this guy, I don't know if he's a motivational speaker. And do you like debunking them being like, I'm a great guy. I'm just tattooed at the gills. Yeah. So funny, funny story about that. So that's the reason I got it. So a few weeks before my dad passed, we had a conversation and I wasn't tattooed at all. I had like two little bands on my legs and a tramp stamp. Right. And uh, he's like, you're a terrible employee. So you're going to need to find a way to make your own money. And so I was like, geez, that hurts. So I went out and got a job and kept it for two years just to prove him wrong. You know? And, but it came down to, he always told me you got to dress for the job you want. And uh, my second chance was so freaking hard. And the more confidence I got and the more understanding of mental health I got, I was like, you know what? I'm going to be the best version of myself. You know, Eric Thomas, I don't. Number one, he's the number one motivational speaker in the world. E.T., the hip-hop preacher. You got to check him out. I will. But he said, one, he said, you'll never be the best copycat. And two, he says, when you're good, you've got to dress up. When you're great, they just hear the message. And he always wears a flat brim hat and a t-shirt. And anytime I went to church, I would like get the flu symptoms. I swear I have PTSD from dressing up. So I was like, okay, I got to get great. I got to get great because <laughs> I want to be able to wear a t-shirt. And so I just kept going. Like I wanted I, the judgment I already got. And I always felt kind of like a warrior in a sense. Like I was just drawn to the battles. I was drawn to standing up for the underdog. So I've got my, my armor literally tattooed on and it reminds me of my battle every day. So I'm now on a pretty big stage and I get the keynote speaker spot for my entire state's teachers, uh, like school association uh, convention. So there's like 2,000 educated teachers, five or 600 admins. And I'm walking into this place. They're all dressed in suits and ties and all that stuff. And I walk in and these two people run over and grab me by the arm like, this is a private event. You can't be here. And they're shuffling me out of the place that I'm the keynote for. The guy that hired me is like in a dead sprint. No, like he's the speaker. And I'm just laughing. And they're like, just the looks on their face just dropped. I'm like, it's okay. That's why I got him. And I walked right back in, took the stage, massive big screens and, you know, standing out at the end. And it's like, I walk around my, my ex-girlfriend, she had uh, blonde dreadlocks and we're tattooed in Utah. And people would literally like cross the street to not have to walk by us. Wow. So we'll be sitting at lunch or whatever. And people are just looking and talking and looking and talking. And then they see me on TV and they see me in the newspaper and they see me in front of all these people doing the stuff. So it's like, that's what I want. I want them to talk. I want them to fear. I want them to do all that stuff. Then to find out, guess what? I'm a good dude. Yep. I'm helping more people in a year than they will help in an entire lifetime between coaching like at schools in the hallways and what I do outside of that. And it's like, we've got to get past that, that judging a book by its cover. And that'll always be because judgments and everybody, mm -hmm. but that's a, that's a big deal. You know, I've got two legs, two leg sleeves, both arms done, my chest done, my back's entirely done. And I got that all done in two years. Oh, wow. It's like I just committed to the suit. I committed to, the, to, to my persona, 
And, you know, I want to be filling stadiums. I want to change the way people view mental health because it doesn't matter what, besides like cancer stuff, sex slavery, child trafficking, all this stuff. Guess what doesn't happen if you're mentally healthy? All of it. There's no vets dying. There's no homeless. There's no, the entire world changes if we figure out this mental health piece. Mm -hmm. So I'm all in. If I'm a billionaire or if I'm homeless, I'm still doing what I'm doing right now. I love it. Yeah, you said it right. You can't judge a book by its cover. And I'm glad that you're on this mission, my friend. I'm glad that we met. Yeah, me as well. What is I appreciate you doing what you're doing. Oh, no, I appreciate that, man. Thank you so much. What are some words of wisdom for someone who is down and out and feels like they're at rock bottom? What would you say to them? Got this tattoo right here, and it says it's better to stand and fight. If you run, you will only die tired. And my question for them is, aren't you done running? Aren't you freaking tired? Like, it doesn't get any worse. You run from your anxiety. You run from your depression. You hide from those that love you. At some point, whether that be with soldiers on your back holding you up, it's time to take a peek under the hood. It's time to make those small changes. It doesn't happen. It's not some massive change. It's little tiny bits and pieces every single damn day, making your bed, brushing your teeth, and eating on time, moving your body. That might be it for the first year. Like It doesn't have to be drastic, but it does have to happen because I've got a saying. It's like, it's okay to not be okay, but it's not okay to not be okay and do anything about it. Right. You are needed. You are worth it. Somebody loves you. I love you and I don't even know you. I love you too, man. So like reach out to the right people. You know, there's millions of people out there willing to help. There's a few of me's out there willing to help. And it's not rocket science. It's just not. It's just little, little, little bit of support, finding out what you're good at and then finding a way to make money to do that. I'll say this. I, I don't care what anyone says. Nobody likes running. <laughs> you run a marathon, deep down, you're not enjoying yourself until it's over. That's the biggest one. Yeah. And my favorite thing that is said is if you're going to go if you're going to go down swinging. I always love that. It's like if you're going to fight, I'll go down swinging instead of run. I'll, I'll do that 10 times out of 10. Yep. That yeah, that warrior saying I'd rather die on my feet than live on my knees. It's like I, I was sick of being a slave to my mental health. It was too scary all the time. Yeah. Like it just got to the point where the pain of pain of suffering became too much and and I and I just needed to do the work. Fantastic, man. Let's wrap up with this. It's been such a pleasure talking with you, man. I feel motivated. I'm going to tackle the day and punch it right in the mouth. Um, I'm very intrigued by this. I feel like it's probably going to be something I don't know. But what would Rob Eastman, the Beastman's theme song would be? if he, Like, you come out to an arena. Do you have a theme song when you come out and speak? Um, no. I've had – when I, I'm, a, I'm a retired cage fighter, and uh, – I came out to some Kanye songs and it was calm, but it just talks about that every day you get up and, and you're focused on everything that comes into your way is there to teach you something. It's not there happening to you. It's happening for you. And the more you become self-aware and you can see it coming down the pipeline, the less it's going to happen to you. That's why I'm making that relationship with pain and bringing it to the dinner table and asking it what the hell it wants. You can see it a little bit better. So. That's uh, that would be it. So wait, what's the song? 
And it just the name of it just slipped my mind as I was telling that. <laughs> it's a Kanye song. Uh, yeah. All right. Um, well, I'll have to send it to you. I'll get. I'll. I'll find it and and send it out. It's been a minute since I fought, but per- perfect. Who were some of your favorite fighters? Do you have any? Yeah, like right now, um, obviously Conor McGregor was big for me. I went and trained in his gym back in 2017 in, in Ireland. Um, and some of these new guys like uh, Sugar Shum, O'Malley, and there's just so much talent now that if you watch fighting, it seems violent. But if you learn fighting, and especially if you know jiu-jitsu, you know it's not violence. It's it's a chess match. It's mm-hmm. breathing. It's control it's patience it's all these things so i'm watching a, a a ballet you know where people are seeing all this blood or this or that i'm like wow he just slipped that kick and followed up with a double leg and into a head and arm choke like it's it's beautiful it gives me the chills talking about it right now yeah yeah so it's like it slows down for me and the more i learned in fighting and jujitsu it's like almost just slows the chaos down and i can think in a high risk environment and be calm so the world has to hit pretty hard in order to get me derailed i got into jiu-jitsu probably the weirdest way because when i watched the ufc i didn't really know much about it and i was like what is this boring stuff that they're doing on the ground so then i, <laughs> so then I looked into it and people were like like swearing by it so i was like all right i'll give it a shot and it's like one of my favorite things i'm not just saying this because you're a wrestler but i feel like wrestling and jiu-jitsu is probably the best one-two combo because every fight goes to the ground at some point yeah yeah yeah, and it's the toughest grind too. Yeah, you know, people don't like it, but it is exhausting. And ultimately, if you're gonna get raped, if you're gonna get beat up, if you're what, you're gonna end up on your back. You're gonna end up on the ground. What do you do from there? It yeah. Doesn't matter how much you bench or how hard you hit if you're on your back. And it doesn't matter if you're six foot eight if you're on your back. I will smother you, and I'm five eight. Yep. Like, yeah, you wrestlers are annoying sometimes. I'm like, I can't even yeah. move. <laughs> Yeah, we don't give space, and we are we we can go forty five minutes hard. Yep, you know, so it's just any martial art, anything that puts you out of your comfort zone and makes you think and and allows you to gain confidence, real confidence. But you can't, people can't. What you know in jujitsu, nobody can take that from you. Nope. The lessons you've learned on the mat, nobody can take that. Not the bank, not a girl, not a dad, not like you get that. You get to wear that, so it's priceless. What are three things that you're grateful for today, my friend? My mental health, my daughter, my ability to be a father, and the understanding that I'm simply a tool on this planet. I used to be a tool to this planet. (laughs) Now I'm a tool for the planet that I'm here, I learned, and I need to share that shit. I've got a book coming out at the end of the year. And uh, it's all my entire story and the fails and the lessons and what I gained. And hopefully some other people will see that you're not alone and that maybe some of the things that I did could help you. When's that book coming out? Uh, we should be doing beta reading by the end of the year. So we're hoping to drop uh, like first first quarter. And it's called Warrior in the Garden. Fantastic. Look at that exclusive. No one knows that right now, right? Yeah, Only this- you're, the first, you're the first one. So that goes back to the saying, it's better to be a warrior in a garden than a gardener in a war. It's just being prepared. I'd rather I'd rather know it and not need it than need it and not know it. So yep. all those things, it's like prepare. You know, I trained for legit warfare 
and hopefully it never comes. But if it does, I pray for the other guy. You have my favorite sayings of this whole interview, my friend. You are a true <laughs> motivational speaker. Where can everyone find you on the internet? Uh, the best place where I do most of my stuff is on Instagram at Tattooed Life Coach in the number eight or EastmanFitnessUtah.com. And then I also have a podcast called Stand and Fight. So, so after this interview, go check out Stand and Fight. Go go buy his book in like a year from now. Go follow <laughs> Rob Eastman, the Beastman. I'm sorry that I keep calling you the Beastman. I think that's a great hey, I love it. And the fact I that no it. one's given that to you for the longest time is a shame. <laughs> <laughs> well, I appreciate it. Where are you at in, in around Boston? Yeah, just south of Boston. Cool. My first rehab, my, my roommate was from uh, Boston. Probably a good dude, right? Oh, yeah. He's a okay, redhead, good. too. Wild man. <laughs> yep. So they breed them wild out here. I'm not as wild as, as some of them, but I've seen it. Um, Rob Eastman, the Tattooed Life Coach, thank you so much for coming on with me, man. Yeah, I appreciate it. And I want to make my way out there. And if I do, I definitely want to link up with you for dinner. Please do. That would be awesome, man. That's been awesome. another episode of 2010 Minutes. I thank you. Let's break the stigma by cracking a smile. This podcast is not intended to be a substitute for professional medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment. Always seek the advice of your physician or other qualified health provider with any questions you may have regarding a medical condition. If you are feeling suicidal, please dial 911.